Hello everyone and welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Deputy Director at IFG. Um, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Chris Heaton Harris MP, the Northern Ireland Secretary. We're going to discuss the ongoing governance challenges in Northern Ireland, the impact of the Windsor framework and the Northern Ireland Office's approach to power, to, reassuring, to restoring power sharing. Um, Chris was elected MP for Daventry in 2010. He's held a range of junior ministerial positions in FCDO, um, Transport, Dexu, and indeed the WIPS office. He was appointed to be Secretary of State for Northern Ireland in September 2022. And just a month later, following the DUP's protest over the Northern Ireland Protocol, the region <coughs> was left without ministers. Since then, we have agreed the Windsor framework, um, but that hasn't been enough to uh, convince the DUP to return to government. And meanwhile, Northern Ireland civil servants are having to keep the show on the road, but clearly face a whole range of challenges, including creaking public services and, of course, the ongoing cost of living crisis. The Secretary of State has had to set a budget for Northern Ireland and officials are being obliged to make a whole series of difficult decisions to balance the books. So it's with this context that the Secretary of State is going to make some opening remarks. Then there'll be some discussion between us and I'm going to make sure I leave lots of time for audience questions. If you're joining us online, then please do submit questions on Slido at any time. You don't have to wait until it's question time. Um, and as usual, the IFG team will be tweeting uh, throughout the event. Uh, they'll be using, and please use this as well. If you're tweeting, the hashtag IFG Northern Ireland. Chris, over to you for opening remarks. Shall I go up there then? Please I do. Love a podium. <laughs> nice one. And thank you very much indeed. Sorry, I have got a bit of a formal five to ten minutes just to start up with, and then we'll yep. do proper conversation if that's okay. And thank you, Emma, for the invitation. And I'm grateful for it. Um, I'd like to think I'm one of the more shy members of the government. I try not to um, talk about what I'm doing because uh, I think government is probably, uh, in many ways, um, well, I'm a football referee in my spare time, and like a good referee, you don't, want, you, you don't really want to be the centre of attention. You should just be making sure that everything moves in the right direction, and that at the end of the day, uh, most people are talking about the game rather than about um, the official. So, um, and I try and operate in that way. It's been, as you say, nearly 10 months since I became um, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, and the Prime Minister essentially set me up with three tasks. Um, the first was uh, obviously to try and find solutions um, for the Northern Ireland Protocol, which had caused, as you said in your opening remarks, the DUP to walk away from the executive um, back last February. And then because of the, the way legislation works, they, the ministers disappeared, oh, I think it was about midnight on the 28th of October. Um, and so sorting out the issues, and they're practical issues, um, as, well, uh, uh, as well as constitutional ones around uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol was you know, one of the big points we had to do because without that, there was very little chance of getting the DUP um, back in. Second is obviously to restore, uh, to get the executive up and working again. Um, uh, super important, now my main focus, pretty much my sole focus in, in, in many ways, although there are other pieces of legislation that I have under my control uh, that I need to get through. And then the third one um, is the all-important one, which is to make Northern Ireland one of the most prosperous parts of the United Kingdom. Um, it has lagged behind in so many economic indicators, and yet it's an amazing place with so much uh, potential. Um, so, and I can guarantee to you, that those of you that haven't visited 
recently that Northern Ireland is vibrant, full of economic and, co uh, and cultural potential, um, and is a truly incredible place to do politics, to, to meet people, to do business, um, uh, and actually wonderful cultural activities too. They are the, possibly some of the most resilient, creative, and innovative people that meet most challenges with just three words, something like, which I won't do the accent for, but no bother, mate, um, all come together. Um, so I go as Secretary of State to Northern Ireland normally on a Tuesday after Cabinet, come back on a Thursday uh, when I go to my constituency to do what we all MPs do in their constituencies on Fridays and Saturdays, and then pretend to be vaguely normal on Sunday, and then repeat that uh, process uh, after coming down to London on the Monday and spend probably every other weekend out in Northern Ireland um, because there's a lot of things to see and do. And without a First Minister and a Deputy First Minister, I've had to also attend some events on a kind of slightly more symbolic. Uh, we had the Belfast Good Friday 20, uh, 25th anniversary uh, to mark, uh, for example. I get to travel the length and breadth of the country and see the, the fantastic businesses um, both new and long established, creating new and innovative ways to engage with the modern economy. Um, if you go to Belfast and you fly into Belfast City Airport, if you look out to your right, you might well see um, a company called Artemis Zero Emissions. Um, and they've got boats that uh, sit on foils and glide across the top of uh, the, uh, the bay there uh, uh, using 80% less energy um, than uh, your traditional boat. Um, or you might see, uh, just further down, uh, GPS tracking data at, at Statsports being used by the world's leading sports teams. Um, Northern Ireland has also become the global tourist destination for, all, for people from across the world coming to learn about its history, its culture, and to enjoy the crack, as it were. Um, from the Giants Causeway to Belfast City Hall, from Derry London Derry's walls to uh, locks of Fermanagh. The Northern Ireland has something to offer for absolutely everyone. And of course, we all know that's not always been quite like that. Just this year, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, the landmark achievement that brought an end to the years of bloodshed and allowed people, regardless of community, to come together to craft their own future. That agreement can and should never be forgotten. And I was delighted to join with key leaders from that time, including President Clinton, Senator George Mitchell, Tony Blair, Sir Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern at Queen's University when we marked uh, these events. Um, it was an opportunity to reflect on the agreement, the peace process leading up to it, and crucially the progress delivered in the years since 1998 um, to, by today's society, including some of you in the room today. And despite the current issues, Northern Ireland's peace process continues to be a beacon of hope around the world as a sign of what can be achieved when we come together and place reconciliation before division. I know a number of you in the room like listening to really good political speeches. If you want to actually hear one of the best ever crafted speeches, you should just YouTube Senator George Mitchell's speech at Queen's University um, uh, when we were marking that. It was one of the most remarkable speeches I've ever heard in my political career um, with anecdotes that both underlined issues that were had then that had reflections on today's politics too. 25 years on from the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, Northern Ireland is undoubtedly a better place. However, we all know the challenges that it, it, it continues to face. 
For far too long, political instability has prevented the, the Stormont Assembly and Executive from delivering for the people that elect it. As we meet here today, Northern Ireland has been without a devolved government for well over a year. Now, as Secretary of State, I talk regularly, very regularly, with the political parties and believe each of them wishes to return to the executive to ensure that Northern Ireland can thrive and prosper. Now, the Windsor framework represented significant progress along the way and work is now underway with the, all the main parties so everyone can better understand the basis on which the executive can be returned. Now, too often in politics, groups and individuals focus on the issues that divide us. Uh, but my focus has been to continue to work in partnership with the local parties to deliver for the people of Northern Ireland you know, for their common interests, locally elected political decision-making, cross-community collaboration, stability, progress. If Northern Ireland has anything, it is potential. For too long, the young, its young people have left its shores for universities uh, uh, overseas never to return. Today, more and more of them choose to study at the world-renowned universities of Queen's and Ulster, as well as some fantastic further education colleges. And they're beginning to develop new skills in creating new technologies in cyber, fintech, and creative arts. And it's these people who make it, who make it possible for Northern Ireland to be the prime location to site your business if you want to be in film and television. I mean, world-renowned shows such as The Game of Thrones, The Fall the Line, and Line of Duty have helped establish Northern Ireland as a centre of excellence for the visual industry. And Northern Ireland is growing uh, as a centre for cyber security, with the UK government announcing in February £18.9 million worth of investment in Northern Ireland's cyber security industry, including £11 million government funding through the New Deal for Northern Ireland to develop a pipeline of cyber security professionals in Northern Ireland, as well as helping businesses and startups develop new opportunities. It further cements Northern Ireland's position as a world leader in cyber security. And at the same time as the Belfast Good Friday Agreement conference that we had at Queen's, 2,600 people involved in cybersecurity, uh, private and public sector in the United Kingdom, gathered in Belfast to have their own conference because now Belfast is the catalyst for so many uh, businesses that spin off in that world. So the potential for Northern Ireland is immense. It can only grow. And it, that means Northern Ireland will become a better, even better place to live, work and visit. Now, I love my role as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, I know I have only kind of done one third of the task, um, and even that, as many people would have heard my Prime Minister say, the solution in the Windsor framework is not the perfect solution, but it is a good uh, solution. So I've still got quite a lot to do, but the next bit is the most important. I'm dedicated to getting, restoring the executive, developing and then developing the economy and maximizing the potential of Northern Ireland. So I hope we'll cover some of that in the questions. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. And we're certainly going to cover lots of that in questions. Now, as you say, you've been in the role for 10 months. So I want to take you back to last autumn when you first took on the Secretary of State role. At that point, I think it's fair to say you had quite a lot of experience in government, but perhaps a bit less experience of Northern Ireland. How did you get to grips with the, the kind of complexities, the history, the unique political arrangements in Northern Ireland? Um, 
Well, I did have a decent amount of experience of Northern Ireland, um, but not in such a full-on, full-frontal way, uh, uh, as it were. So um, I've been a member of the European Parliament for 10 years, between 1999 and 2009. One of my best friends then was the Ulster Unionist MP, Jim Nicholson, who took me out to see Stormont in operation, mm -hmm. um, meet some of the key people um, back in the early 2000s. And then, um, well, I, I guess through being a whip, you get to meet the Northern Ireland MPs quite a lot. Uh, and, uh, and, and enjoy the conversation and the crack with them. Um, and then I actually, uh, in my CV, the, the bit that everybody misses out because it's a, a, just a glimpse was when David Frost resigned from uh, government um, and being the negotiator on the Northern Ireland Protocol, this uh, trust was given that uh, responsibility in the Foreign Office and I was put into the Foreign Office mm -hmm. to assist with that and spent um, only seven weeks in that role. However, most of that time was talking to people mm -hmm. um, from Northern Ireland political parties, civil society, business. Um, so if, any, if anything, it was pretty good induction to modern day Northern Ireland and its politics. Oh, and you talked about being there every Tuesday to Thursday, spending every other weekend there. How important do you think that kind of physical presence in, in Northern Ireland is? Um, well, I'm someone that hey, I best receive... You know, people like to be brief, some, some like to read, mm -hmm. some like to talk. I, I, I need to actually experience as well so um, to truly understand. And so there are some things... In, in Northern Ireland, I mean, the, it's a very complicated space, but, uh, you know, I've been going around recently um, meeting with different members of the unionist community, the Orange Order, the uh, Apprentice Boys of Londonderry and a whole host of others. And it's, you know, it's a, fashion, a really interesting insight to our, our mm -hmm. country's history. Yeah. In your speech, you, know, you said you come into role, one of your first priorities is sorting out the protocol. In February, we agreed the Windsor framework. <clears throat> now, we seem to have been stuck in a kind of stalemate around the protocol for a number of years up until that point. What do you think it was that changed that allowed us to unlock that agreement and how important was the change in Prime Minister as part of that? Um, I mean, uh, an, an element was, was a change in Prime Minister, yeah, without a doubt. Um, but actually, I mean, when I got this role, I was, uh, and it was Liz Truss who uh, made me Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, I was... Uh, I've, I'm very fortunate and I get to kind of hold the key to the door of the relationship with Ireland, uh, you know, a, a, a country that is our, our friend, whose ambassador's here today, so I can't say anything else. Um, but no, uh, and um, I knew that relationship wasn't in the right place and there was no good reason for it. Um, and I'm a great believer that you build uh, friendships on trust and respect and I fully trust and respect. My then counterpart was Simon Coveney, who happened yeah. to be a member of the European Parliament with me, so we had no issues um, uh, on, on that space. So we were able to talk about some of the more awkward, fundamental issues that we needed to address um, together. And I'd like to think our relationship goes from strength to strength, um, and that's no bad thing for anyone. And then when the Windsor Framework came along, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a whole host of things that were behind it that will eventually, uh, I'll leave it for other people to, to bring out, but a lot of that, you, it's very difficult to negotiate with people without trust, res respect, but there's also an extra element that came into play there, um, which was confidentiality. Mm -hmm. um, there was an agreement to try and do things um, as, uh, as quietly as possible, because uh, 
we'd, both sides had experienced just mooting ideas to have them um, destroyed in, in the public arena, in the press, or in, the, in, par in parliaments, or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we, we, there was a, uh, because there was trust and respect, there was therefore the space to do that, to explore what could be achieved. And actually, if you look at the Windsor framework, it doesn't dabble just with the kind of uh, the top layer of uh, the issues that we have in, in uh, that Northern Ireland has with the protocol. It does deal with many of the fundamental pieces and stuff that was going to come forward because the protocol had not been fully enacted. Um, we'd had grace periods that were coming to an end, infractions with the European Union that we, uh, we, where we're being taken uh, would have been, uh, gone further. Um, bad blood accumulating. And um, so we needed to find solutions, if possible, to all of that. And so the, fra the framework went a lot further than like, I think even I appreciated at the mm -hmm. time. And you and um, Chris Baker, as former members of the ERG, you know, you've just set out, you thought it was a very good deal. What would you say to colleagues who still say it doesn't go far enough? Um, well, St uh, Steve Baker. Um, Steve Baker, yeah, 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 Everyone should be called Chris, it would make it a lot easier. <laughs> um, but, um, no, so, yeah, as, as we all know, we, everyone knows, the Prime Minister said it when he, he launched the Windsor Framework um, uh, in Parliament, that it's not perfect, however, um, it goes a long, long way to solving lo the practical issues that people were finding. And, and, and um, let me try and describe what that felt like. If you're a unionist in Northern Ireland, uh, and because of something called the, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, and that, that uh, elements of it, businesses were taking uh, from, the, from Great Britain were beginning to remove goods from the shelves of Northern Ireland stores. Marks and Spencers was a prime example of that, but lots of other businesses were doing the same thing. Some for actual reasons that, because part of the protocol had been enacted, but some because the, the pro this was going to be the stuff was coming down the line, so businesses were getting ahead of the curve, and lots of it was perception. Um, you know, it sounds very complicated, um, so let's you know, let's not supply goods. So if you're a unionist in Northern Ireland, you saw goods disappearing from Great Britain disappearing from your shelves. Now, they were replaced by other goods, mm -hmm. but from the European single market, and actually that was a physical demonstration in many unionist minds, and I completely understand it, that Northern Ireland was being dragged out of the orbit of the UK, UK's single mar internal market mm -hmm. into the European single market. And so that had to be addressed. And it was no good for the Northern Ireland economy, it was no good for anybody. So um, now, the framework involves a lot of guidance. You'd have seen the first huge amount of data uh, uh, from uh, on guidance uh, came out on the gov.uk website a week, uh, two Thursdays ago, um, and there'll be more to come. So it doesn't actually come into effect until the end of October, but I'm hoping then when people see a practical difference mm -hmm. um, in their, uh, how goods flow from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, um, will start to be the step change in, uh, change in attitudes to uh, the framework. And then I just want to bring in at this point one question from the audience online on the framework as well. <coughs> Do you recognise unionist concerns that the protocol represents, you know, essentially a constitutional change for Northern Ireland? And, and how do you plan to address that? Yeah, um, well, I mean, it's probably a journalist that's asked that um, because it's, a, it's a, uh, a, a question I'm asked a lot by Northern Ireland journalists. And yes, is the answer. Uh, there is more to the Northern Ireland protocol than just um, goods moving around uh, and 
the, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party had a number of tests. Mm -hmm. um, now, I believe most of them are partially or uh, answered by uh, what we've achieved in the Windsor framework. Actually, I think lots of them could be achieved by um, if we completely enacted some of the things that uh, the geeks in the audience might have read in the command paper associated with the, uh, uh, with the uh, Windsor framework. But the, ma the major issue now is to somehow, in legislative terms, um, yet to be defined how, um, on either side, um, make sure that we could, uh, there was a court case at the Supreme Court that uh, went about, uh, was about the act of union and how the Northern Ireland Protocol had subjugated that. Um, now, uh, we need to reconfirm essentially what's in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, that Northern Ireland is a, we're, you know, we're proud to have Northern Ireland as a strong and integral part of the United Kingdom um, and, it can, and, and it will remain so until such time as the people of Northern Ireland decide otherwise. Um, now, I've said, uh, you know, I've said to my Democratic Unionist friends that you know, I can say that on the floor of the House at the dispatch box, um, but I know it's not enough for them just to hear it, so they need some sort of demonstration of that. How you do that is a moot point, which is the moot point trying, that the questioner was trying to get to. So I want to move on to another kind of big part of your speech, Chris, the fact that at the moment the region is without ministers. Now, this is something we've looked at quite a lot, actually, in our own research at IFG, where we found that one of the biggest impacts um, is the degradation of public services. Now, you talked about wanting to make Northern Ireland one of the most prosperous places in the UK, but today crises in public services are even worse than the time that we did our research. And, of course, everybody's experiencing the cost of living crisis. What's your analysis of what problems have arisen in Northern Ireland from not having ministers? Does it cause challenges for your desire to make Northern Ireland as prosperous as possible? Um, and how long is the situation sustainable for? Yeah, I mean, uh, not sure what, what order to answer those questions, but let, I mean, yes, it absolutely causes issues with trying to... I mean, there are, and uh, the government's going to have an investment conference in Northern Ireland in September. Mm -hmm. And, um, and indeed, the American administration appointed a special envoy for economic, um, to try and generate more economic activity in Joe Kennedy III um, back at the beginning of this year. Um, and he's come across, I believe he's across again, um, this week. And he is determined to bring in a huge amount of American investment. And President Biden talked about this when he visited Northern Ireland um, the week before. Uh, well, I think it was about the 19th of April. Um, but there is a huge amount of interest um, because whilst we might um, analyse and pick apart uh, the, the Windsor framework, what it does do is it means goods manufactured in Northern Ireland can go into the European single market uh, in a, on an unfettered basis and indeed obviously into the UK internal market. We also have... Um, the various benefits of our service industry and our services now outside of the European Union um, with so potential Brexit freedoms in that space for Northern Ireland uh, businesses to enjoy um, and, the, and various access to uh, elements of the, uh, all the trade deals that we are now signing. So actually, if you're looking at it in, from in purely investment terms, Northern Ireland is actually a genuinely interesting place to invest. What it actually needs now is a bit of stable politics, and that's why getting the executive back is so important. Now, these businesses are already coming. 
Um, so not having an executive there is not the, the ultimate barrier. But if you're making an investment um, in people, in place, um, for, a, a, for a long time, mm -hmm. having government ministers to talk to about individual issues is, is going to be quite handy. Um, and actually quite an important part of in your decision-making process and your, your, the due diligence you would do before you get to that point. So yes, it is an impediment, but it does, and, it, and which is why now the, my emphasis is and has been for quite some time on getting the executive uh, back up and running. But as I say, we had to solve some other problems before that to get to this point. And what levers do you think you have to try and get the executive back up and running? Um, well, actually, I think there is a bit of a, an understanding now in, in, in Northern Ireland that, so that I think there's more of a grassroots movement to get the executive up and running as well. I mean, so politicians, like I, I can talk to people until I'm blue in the face. It might not change their perception of anything. Um, now, I, you know, I'm keen to work with the DUP to find out, you know, to, to completely get to where we need to get to, to get them back into the executive. Um, but Northern Ireland hasn't had uh, a plan for government um, I think it's only had a plan for government for like two out of the last eight years. Uh, even when there were ministers, they didn't set a budget. So um, before uh, ministers left, the Sinn Féin Minister for Finance um, uh, went on the record to say there was a, a kind of essentially a, a black hole in Northern Ireland's finances of 660 million um, already built up within a financial uh, year. And it was, you know, and not, that wasn't going in a good direction. Um, now, I do not, as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, have the power, in legislative power, to intervene um, directly on decision-making in Northern Ireland and policy, um, and nor would I want it, mm -hmm. um, because I truly believe in the, uh, this devolved settlement that was set up by the Belfast Good Friday Agreement um, uh, uh, coming forward. So, and currently, all we have is the powers that I uh, give, we have granted the civil service um, to, to make sure that public spending can, uh, or public money can be spent in a, in a sensible manner to guarantee public services. But there's no one taking, the problem is no one's taking decisions. And, um, and we need people, decision makers, locally elected decision makers to take decisions about, you know, there's lots of spending in, there's lots of duplicate spending um, in education, in the health service, which needs, uh, there, was a ben, there was a reform, a report on reform in the health service, Bengoa report, um, commissioned and reported in 2017, which I think most people um, in Northern Ireland political parties agreed with um, to try and cut down on the duplication, make sure that uh, health was reformed, not necessarily in exactly the same way as England had been reformed, but um, along slightly different lines. Um, and yet, and the British government actually put some money in to try and get these reforms, but it goes into the barnetized formula, goes into block grant, um, gets distributed and, spent in, and got spent in a slightly different way. So everybody knows that there is a need for more shared and integrated education in Northern Ireland. But those, again, there needs extra decisions to be taken by ministers and by locally elected people in that space. So we are in a bit of a stasis at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very uncomfortable for the civil servants in Northern Ireland. I understand that. They are doing an amazing job considering the pressures they are, uh, they are under. Um, um, and so, 
and that adds actually a, 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 a bit because the, all the politicians understand that they do need to be taking these decisions. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you a bit about how you're supporting the civil service in a minute, but I just want to stick with the, the budget for a little longer. I've got a few audience questions, as you might expect on this. Um, one person, Anonymous, wants to know, when making decisions on the budget, what assessment did you make of how those decisions would impact on people and communities in Northern Ireland um, against your stated goal of maximising potential? Yeah, I mean, so um, the budget well, it was the budget that was kind of set in the spending review of a couple of years ago. So um, now the bu budget overspend, by the time we got to the end of the financial year, was about £297 million. Now, in the rules of how you look after public money, that should be taken out of this year's block grant, but we, um, we uh, asked the Treasury to defer that for a year. So this year's budget, um, whilst there has been the pressures of inflation and energy prices and stuff, but all UK government departments have had to swallow those um, within their existing budget set at the spending review. So the budget for Northern Ireland was exactly what was expected. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, 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 all statutory services can be delivered, but there are no, as this is a problem with things come up. Political decisions are required. Uh, I do not have the legislative power to, to take them, and the civil service obviously do not either. Mm -hmm. So, um, when things change, there's no one there to make a big uh, a call on, on that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, yeah. And you mentioned how difficult this has been for the civil service. You know, they're essentially being put in a position in the absence of ministers where they're having to engage with essentially political decisions about spending and services. What are you doing to support civil servants on that front? Um, so you, there's a limit to what the Northern Ireland office can offer uh, the Northern Ireland civil service um, because the Northern Ireland office, since the times of devolution, has now, um, because we don't have powers in these areas. I think we are now 166 as a headcount, smallest government department. Strong expertise, really good people. Um, but there's a limit to what we can offer in terms of support. To, uh, we work with them on a daily basis. Um, there are uh, we've got people there. Uh, it, uh, and, and helping and talking and going through some, some of the, uh, these things. And actually, the Northern Ireland Civil Service, because we obviously want transparency so pe um, people can see that political decisions aren't being made um, by civil servants. Uh, I, I place on the floor of the House how they've, the, the sorts of decisions they've made that are in the area of guidance that I've allowed them to, uh, to, to take decisions in. Um, so, uh, so we're supporting them as much as we can, but we are a very small government department and um, there's a limit to what we can offer. You talked about the stasis um, in the absence of, of the executive. <coughs> I think, according to our analysis, since 1997, the executive's only been up and running about 60% of the time. Is it time to start thinking about whether reforms are needed to the power-sharing institutions to provide more stability for the region? Um, or is there more that could be done to support ministers? Um, so I'm spending all of my time trying to get the executive up and running. Mm -hmm. I know there is a wider question, and it's been uh, there's a couple of the political parties in Northern Ireland that have started to talk about it. Um, but um, you know, my prime minister's given me no, in no uncertain terms um, a list of what I should do and how I should uh, how I should achieve it. Now I think we we can, and 
I do believe there is a willingness amongst all the political parties in Northern Ireland to get the executive up and running. Um, um, and I, I want to achieve that. Now, the debate that you talked about, or the, or the subject you mentioned, is actually quite a fundamental one, because um, that, invo that would involve changes to the Belfast Good Friday mm -hmm. Agreement in some way. And that is where we've got to be unbelievably careful. I believe that's got to be driven by, um, driven by the people of Northern Ireland. Thank you. I think that's a good moment to stop and start taking questions from the audience. I am going to take them in threes. Um, please say who you are, where you're from. Um, yeah, hands up, please. Okay, I've got one here, one here, one here. My name's Dennis Loretto. Um, I was a founder member of the Alliance Party in 1970 and was chairman of it for several years, so I'm pretty closely interested in all this. Um, just to come straight back to the point that was made a moment ago, given the stultifying effect of not only the executive not being formed, but every one of the 90 members of the assembly <coughs> not allowed to meet at all, um, obviously uh, that has to be addressed. But given also that three years this was done by Sinn Féin, one year and counting by DUP, it would be very foolish not to address fairly soon what should happen so to stop it happening again. Mm -hmm. I would argue that the, um, it's not necessary to change the fundamentals of the Good Friday Agreement. There's a perfectly good precedent at St Andrews in 2006. Um, changes were made in the way in which executive was formed and the kind of thing that we're talking about uh, and went through without, without um, abrogating the Good Friday Agreement. I really think there is no excuse at all for not addressing this. And while, of course, one would not expect a commitment to do that, can we please have an assurance that um, it will be seriously looked at once the Assembly and the Executive are up and running again? Yeah, I'm actually quite sure it will be looked at, but it will be, that will be driven by the Assembly and the Executive when it's, when it's up and running. I don't think you'll be able to stop that institution from debating um, its own rules at all. Um, let's see, let, let, let's get them there first. I mean, this, this is why it's important in every single way, all roads lead to getting, the exec, getting Stormont sitting and the Executive up and running. Um, and, and, uh, and that's why I spend rather a lot of time trying to do that. Okay. Uh, afternoon, Secretary Adam Payne from Politics Home. Um, I believe it was last week when Sir Geoffrey Donaldson said negotiations with the UK government over the legal assurances that you've described uh, are at a crucial stage. Uh, are they at a crucial stage? And is it your intention, the government's intention, to deliver those assurances in whatever form they take before the summer recess? Um, so, yeah, I do see all the political parties very, very, very often. Um, and um, forgive me, Adam, for just learning the lessons of what I, uh, from the Windsor framework, but I'm not going to comment on um, what's, what the content of, uh, of those conversations are because it's, uh, I'm very keen to make sure that the, I feel we're, in a, uh, we're on a positive direction, uh, going in a positive direction, inch by inch, millimeter by millimeter. 
Um, and I do not want to upset that. Hello, my name's Andrew, Andrew Edwards. Christopher, I just want to ask, oh, I'm a bloke who just takes trains between Dundalk and Newry, cross-border trains in Ireland. Uh, we've got two people over there, the First and Deputy First Minister on that wall. I simply wondered whether or not we could rename the First and Deputy First Minister into Joint First Minister, and then no one needs to think that they've got a lesser job than they had before, and if you've had any talks about that within your wide circle of network. Um, interesting enough, so whilst it has been um, raised by commentators, I don't think any of the political parties have ever raised that with me. Um, but so I've heard about it, whatever, but it's not, it's not a fundamental part of um, uh, any ask from anyone there. And actually, I think it's fair, it's fair to say um, that uh, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson uh, leads a party that believes in democracy, and he understands that it's important that elections, the results of elections, should end up in um, whoever gets elected top of the top of the poll in Northern Ireland should become the first minister. So, um, if that's a good enough answer, I'll leave it there. Thank you. More questions from the floor. Got one here. Hi, uh, it's Richard. Uh, I work at the uh, Embassy of Japan. Uh, I was wondering uh, what uh, unique or international opportunities you think that the Windsor framework would bring to uh, Northern Ireland that are unique to Northern Ireland compared to the rest of the UK. Do you think that perhaps, uh, you know, this sort of in between the EU but not quite still with the UK, do you think that could end up taking away business from Great Britain, for example? Um. I mean, it's, 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 it's a good question. I mean, I, I think I described what the, the, the unique circumstances in which Northern Ireland finds itself uh, now following the, following the Windsor framework. And, um, yeah, I mean, North, indigenous Northern Ireland businesses is, uh, are uh, savvy, and they are, have already noticed the opportunities that exist for them to take. They do, would like the stable political um, footing um, on which to base further investment decisions, but are, are, are moving forward. And obviously, um, within the Windsor framework, there's um, a, a, a interesting pieces about agri-foods and medicines, and uh, uh, which open up opportunities for Northern Ireland-based businesses uh, there too, and therefore the investment um, uh, within them. So, and it's a you know this is an important for, uh, for all businesses in Great Britain um, to understand that Northern Ireland is an opportunity um, and it really genuinely is um, and uh, you know, with great people who work hard I mean, actually Northern Ireland's employment figures are as good as the rest of great, uh, uh, um, the United Kingdom now, a kind of historically good um, position with a well-educated uh, workforce, you know, things that you can look at all the factors you would want in an economy to uh, to invest within, and I think you'd find most of them sit in the sweet spot of Northern Ireland. Okay, I'm going to take a few more questions from the floor, then I want to um, take some of the online questions. Has anybody else got a question in the room? Okay, I've got one there, one there, one there. Hi, my name is uh, Ian Craig from West Kensington Conservative Association. Oh, yeah. Uh, if Northern Ireland is and has been reasonably successful, why is the gross domestic product of Northern Ireland only 66% of what is supplied by the United Kingdom government? Mm, I think we are a basket case 
uh, England essentially tops us up by 50% per annum uh, to the extent of about 12 billion pounds. Yeah, so... Um, I might just take questions. Okay, three, I'll make a note. Right, just so we can... Um, okay, I have another one over here. Uh, Johnny Andrews, Northern Ireland Conservatives. Um, educate, integrated education was a key principle in the Good Friday Agreement, yet the two governments as guarantors have ignored that. It was interesting to see the Prime Minister when he was over saying that it was important that children started to be educated together. What do the two governments as guarantors propose to do about this and can they look at it at the intergovernmental conference? Thank you. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tistel from Public Affairs in Arup. Um, I've got um, maybe two type of questions, if that's okay. Um, uh, firstly, I'm probably one of those graduates you mentioned in your speech as well that moved away from Northern Ireland, so it's very good to, to, to see that there's an investment uh, conference in September in Northern Ireland. So I just wondered, with a kind of infrastructure piece, what those sorts of opportunities might be, and I know that some of you've just mentioned there. Um, and then secondly, around the standing up of the assembly, and I know that you're kind of limited in what you can say on that, but in terms of the kind of time limit with the elections next year, um, what's your kind of thoughts on that? And obviously I, I'm aware there's a lot that you'd want to do should you be successful in the elections next year as well. Cool. That's it. Thank you. Right, I'll, I'll take the first question first, um, because... I mean, it's, it's a fair point, and um, I do get the, uh, a fair bit of incoming from my own constituents who remind me that for every pound that the government spends on them, we spend £1.20 on, on someone similar in Northern Ireland. Um, but then you've got to understand, and you will understand, why that is the case, and, why, uh, and this does explain why Northern Ireland is in the position that you outlined. Um, Northern Ireland's a post-conflict society, 25 years ago, um, uh, when the Belfast Good Friday Agreement came, came into effect, we just had 30 years of the Troubles that had killed over 3,500 people, tens and, tens and tens of thousands of people injured and maimed, um, and very little investment in infrastructure, business. If you're a business, why would you invest in a... In a, 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 a People now go to, and it's a brilliant hotel in Belfast. I recommend you stay at it Emma, when, you, when you come and visit and see how what a thriving city Belfast is and, uh, and everything around. Um, but the Europa Hotel was known for being the most bombed hotel in the world. You know, uh, and um, who is going to invest in infrastructure as a government? You know, you're, you're actually, I'd imagine back then, they were probably constantly patching rather than putting in proper investment, and you're st so you're starting from a much lower base, and I think that does explain um, why it is important. I know, uh, yeah, I saw, I saw your frown, and, I, and my constituents would then throw at me saying, well, that's been 25 years. But it's been a, it, it, we, we, there are still ripples uh, that affect all this that are going through Northern Ireland, and it is a post-conflict society. It is worthy of the investment that is being put into it, and it will pay dividends for, the, for, the nation, uh, for our country in the long run. Um, Johnny, as ever, is always ahead of uh, the game um, uh, because he talked about integrated education. Um, when I talked about duplication, we, uh, mm -hmm. huge amounts of money have been spent on basically building similar schools, but for Catholics or Protestants very nearby. Um, we're very, very now, some of them unbelievably low numbers on roll, um, but it's just been part of how it has, it has been in, in Northern Ireland. Only 7% of kids 
uh, get an integrated education in Northern Ireland. So that's 7% of children going to a school where no one gives a monkeys what your background is um, or would know what it is. Um, and yes, it's unbelievably important to both the British and the Irish governments, forgive me for talking for your government, uh, Martin, but um, we actually just had yesterday a British-Irish intergovernmental conference. One of the uh, things we talked about is one of the things you asked us to talk about pushing on with this integrated education uh, piece, and we absolutely will. Um, Stephanie, um, there are huge opportunities for infrastructure um, in Northern Ireland, so please um, come and see me or someone who works for me after this meeting. I'll make sure you get invited or someone from your organisation gets invited to the investment conference um, because uh, there's a, there is a growing need to sort out the infrastructure and the politicians there. Again, I'll talk about Geoffrey Donson because it's a, um, he's, the late, uh, he's talked about this quite a lot. Um, people talk about a corridor of opportunity that currently exists between Belfast and Dublin. Um, Geoffrey's um, vision, and it's a good one for the whole um, of Northern Ireland and indeed the island of Ireland, is to extend that into a, a kind of almost like an arc. So it goes from Derry, London, Derry, through Belfast, down to Dublin and across to Cork. And uh, if you really wanted to achieve that, that involves a lot of infrastructure. Um, and on elections, uh, it's very odd being a Secretary of State who does have the power to call elections anywhere, let alone um, in, in Northern Ireland. I do have that power. I, 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 um, I think my time limit, I can call an election at any point um, up until... I think the deadline is the, uh, sometime in January. I can't actually remember the exact date in January uh, when that would be. Um, but the reason for not doing it is because I'm well advised by everybody and anybody that well, all it does at the moment is polarise society that bit more. And whilst the gentleman at the front, who, who one of the founders of the alliance, will tell me that his party is growing in the, in, in the middle um, uh, uh, there, um, that... Uh, when it comes to an election, um, what, you'll, what you see is actually the, the, the vote polarised in two different directions. So uh, I'm fully aware of that, but I do have a legal obligation. <laughs> um, I want to make sure that I'm bringing people online as well. I've got a series of questions about restoring the executive and decision-making in its absence. So um, first one from Dave Penman, the FDA General Secretary. Um, you said that civil servants should not be making decisions that are for elected ministers, yet you refuse to use powers that could be available to you to avoid this. Are civil servants being let down by politicians both in London and Belfast? Um, an anonymous question on how far advanced your discussions are with the DUP in restoring the institutions. Um, and then a question on public services from Anne Watt. Public services in Northern Ireland are hugely struggling due to the lack of proper government, which is having a devastating impact, for instance, on health waiting lists, on school budgets, on SEND provision. Should the Secretary of State step in more to take decisions to avoid further damage to public services? Well, actually, the first and the third question are related because... I don't have any powers to step in to make policy decisions. Um, now, you could say, well, why don't you take them? But then that would be the British government stepping into a space that looks remarkably like direct rule that led to not so great outcomes when we've been in that space before. And it's something I am really very wary of. Um, 
And so most people with, um, from Northern Ireland actually completely understand that is not a place that I, I, I want to go. And um, whilst I understand the way the, the, uh, the question, the third questioner uh, uh, put it, and um, you know, I, I see the size of the waiting list for going to see a consultant as an outpatient in Northern Ireland, uh, in Northern Ireland's NHS, and uh, I know that if that was in my constituency of Daventry, my inbox would be yeah. overwhelmed by the number of people um, you know, complaining about it, making a point about it, wanting uh, uh, that to be improved. And I, uh, you know, I want to get to the stage where the executive is back and running, so there's a, there is a minister for health who's taking decisions, and, um, and therefore he can have his inbox mm -hmm. um, overwhelmed and, and, and get to take those decisions. But, um, it's a, I, there is a really delicate balance based on the history of Northern Ireland, um, on its evolution um, to peace, the first 25 years of peace and stability, and now we're hoping to add prosperity, to, uh, you know, so it's peace, stability and prosperity for the next 25 years. And um, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm almost certainly not getting everything right in my role. Um, without a shadow of a doubt because but I'm yet to find someone who thinks they know all the answers here um, and I'm pretty sure there'll be a number of secretaries of state after me uh, before we find that perfect solution and then I think the, oh, the DUP, yeah, DUP. DUP I just avoided that question um, because um, how far advanced are we um, I talk to all the political parties regularly and I'm when I, I would love to be able to move a lot quicker than we are, but it is inch by inch. I've got time for one more round of questions in the room. Does anybody have um, a last question that they would like to ask the Secretary of State? Can I just ask another question? The um, libel laws in Northern Ireland are not in line with the rest of the UK, and it's restricting journalism and freedom of speech. Uh, a lot of journalisms are being given um, a lot of hassle on this. Um, other jurisdictions have introduced what are called anti-slap laws. Um, have, have you any intention of intervening in that? And there's been some lobbying on that over the last few years. Thank um, you. There is lobbying on it, but it is one for the executive to introduce. That's in, that's in that realm of devolved power. Can I ask, have you taken the train in Northern Do you know, as, this, is, this is a terribly embarrassing admission but I haven't and I was rail minister um, for the UK for two and a half years so I, I, I've been to Translink um, stations and stuff but I've not jumped on the train so sorry to admit it uh, <laughs> and then I'm going to end on a couple of questions from online uh, first from the Children's Law Centre can the Secretary of State outline how he arrived at the budget allocation specifically what information did you ask for from your own officials and from the Northern Ireland Civil Service? What did you prioritise and take into account when making your final decision? Um, and then a question on the legacy bill. Is it now in almost finished form? Is it a done deal when it goes back to Commons? Yeah. So the, f the first question, I was asked that at a meeting of NICFA very recently. Essentially, it's about um, I've got Section 75 duties, as has the Northern Ireland Civil Service when mm -hmm. it comes to spending. And yes, they are always taken into account. Um, uh, because if they're not, it's, um, 
it's a it's a place where litigation can flow quite uh, quite quickly. So I take uh, I, I um, my officials very kindly uh, give me advice, and lots of this is based on the advice that's given um, in uh, by the Northern Ireland Civil Service, who take their responsibilities in this space very very seriously too. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot the last question. Um, I was asking about the legacy bill. Is oh, the it legacy in bill. finished yeah. form? Um, is it in finished deal? form? Not quite. So we've tabled amendments to report stage um, in the House of Lords. Um, uh, again, this is a space where um, we are. You know, where shall I start answering this question? I'm going to take two minutes over this. Please do. Um, because. Um, I asked, I was at a panel session for one of the Belfast Good Friday agreement um, uh, uh, debates uh, that's been, uh, that we've had. Um, actually, this one happened to be in Brussels um, in February. And Monica McWilliams, one of the women behind the Belfast Good Friday um, agreement, was asked, uh, did she have any regrets? Was there something that we, they, she wished that, that would have been tackled at the time mm -hmm. um, that... Um, uh, that, could, uh, that now is called, you know, causes issues, and it is victims, and how you look at, you know, how you treat people who are families of victims of the troubles, and that, um, there have been many attempts to try and legislate in this space, um, bring agreements together, um, not least Stormont House. Um, in, in, the, in the recent past, and now the, uh, this gov uh, my government's legacy bill. Mm -hmm. um, now I, I was the, I was the government's chief whip when it went through the Commons, and um, it was fairly obvious that the bill in the state it went through the Commons was causing concern across the piece. Um, I'm not saying that concern has gone away. Um, it was causing con uh, concern across the piece, and we extended the amount of time it had for debate just so we could at least. Uh, so the Commons could air its views. It's had one of the longest committee stages in the Lords. It was, in, it was essentially in committee over five months. We tabled a whole host of amendments. Um, Lord Kane, who's my Lords Minister, and I and Steve Baker have, have now had, I think, if not over 100, just up to 100 different meetings with um, groups of relatives of victims, um, uh, individuals with interest, you, you name it. Um, uh, the victims commissioner and um, uh, people he brings together in Northern Ireland um, and I'm fully aware there are now lots of people who are going to their graves without any knowledge of what happened to their loved ones during the times of the troubles when they were murdered by and most of the, most of the, most of the crimes were committed by terrorists um, and, um, and huge numbers of, of of lives were saved by the security forces. But there was stuff that went on um, that, you know, where people need information. Now, 25 years on from the end of the Troubles, um, I guess I can best summarize it. I, so one of the first events I went to when I became Secretary of State was uh, National Police Memorial Day, which happened to be in Belfast for the whole of the United Kingdom. And I met three um, RUC widows. Um, and they all had a different view of what they would like to see um, one, um, and this is probably where I would sit if I was a, a kind of a member of the public, um, wanted justice, 100% justice. Wanted to see the person that murdered her husband in jail, keys thrown away, uh, justice being served. Second one, um, uh, wanted, was more in the space, wanted information because um, she thought 
Um, she knew who had actually murdered her husband. Um, she thought she lived in the same community, but she just wanted some information as to how her husband died, the circumstances and the circumstances around it. The third one had remarried and was living a, a, a life, a new life, happy life, remarried a long time ago. And, but obviously she wanted to know what happened to her, her first husband, but she didn't want it to be a big part of her new life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so each of those people wanted, need, wanted information, but in a, of a different type. Now the, the legacy bill, um, we've introduced amendments to, that I believe actually do make it um, Article 2 compliant, so we are doing our, uh, the right thing by international law, uh, which means investigations can continue. Um, there's no gap in, uh, in, in that at all, criminal uh, investigations as well. Um, but it does contain conditional immunity for those that come forward and give information, true information, to um, the commission that we are setting up in this legacy bill which would then discharge that information in a report to the families who, who, who might have asked for it. Um, now, I know that is controversial. I know that is uncomfortable. I know that is not perfect. Um, but it might just satisfy two of those three ladies mm-hmm. that I met. And um, it might just give some of the families uh, enough information for them um, to feel comforted that they know what happened to the loved ones. And I also know that for 25 years since the Troubles, the people, uh, you know, the, uh, these families have not had anything. Yeah, there's no, no new evidence has come up. No criminal investigations led to anything. Um, and now it's a generation that is passing on. So it, for me, it's really, it's, it's, I, I promise you it's not perfect. I know that without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but nothing in this Northern Ireland space really truly is, but nothing in government ever truly is. And I, I, I hope that when we get to the House of Commons, and it, uh, this bill was reported back, uh, back to the House of Commons, um, I'm confident I'll be able to stand up hand on heart and say, yep, we... Uh, I, I believe this is an Article 2 compliant bill that does uh, what I've said, tried to describe here very briefly. Um, it's improved, I'd like to think it's been improved massively by the amendments. We listen to all these groups, we take, try to take on board lots of what they wanted to change to make this bill um, uh, compliant, compliant in the, uh, to some of their wishes and hopefully give some people the opportunity to get that information. Brilliant. Thank you, Chris, and I think that's a good moment to end the discussion today on. Thank you so much for such a rich and thoughtful discussion and for responding and so openly to questions. And thank you to all the audience, both in person and online, for taking part. Thank you. Thank you.